Oh, so vouchers just means fewer teachers. Okay, fine. All right. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work, of course, is at houstonchronicle.com and expressnews.com. Jeremy, a lot going on. Let's get right into it. No chit-chat here at the beginning of the show. You know how much people love our chit-chat? How much? A lot. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm going to actually deprive them of it. It ends right now. State of the state. Last night. San Marcos, Texas. Let's set the scene. This was at a manufacturing facility, not the Texas Capitol, which is not the norm. It's it's almost, uh, Jeremy, like like it's COVID days. We're still doing this in a bunker somewhere other than the Capitol in front of a joint session of the House and the Senate. Instead, Abbott's in what I have termed the COVID cocoon, where he's more powerful. He's all powerful. Uh, and he's very comfortable there, right? Where, let me put it this way. This governor thrives in environments that are very controlled, right? I mean, there was reporting this week that the attendees of the speech were going to have to sign NDAs, although that was uh, rescinded. They were going to have to sign non-disclosure agreements because there was some security concern at this company where uh, Abbott was uh, giving the speech. Uh, But I was told that what remained in place was that attendees who went into the building had to surrender their cell phones before they could go into the area that was being used as sort of a makeshift auditorium. All of that kind of strange. I have some big sweeping thoughts about that. I'll get to them in a little bit here. But first, what was said in the speech? Here's Abbott talking about, of course, how great this state is. 187 years after Texas was founded, there has never been a better time to be a Texan. Texas is America's economic juggernaut, where small family businesses can aspire to employ hundreds and become leaders in their local communities. Now, as great as he says Texas is, he also says there's plenty of work left to do. Texas is the seat of knowledge, where children will have safer schools to master the skills that will prepare them for the workforce of tomorrow. Texas is the energy capital of the world, where we will strengthen the electric grid to power us for generations to come. Texas is the home of justice, where dangerous criminals will stay locked behind bars and law-abiding Texans will have their liberties protected. Now, as Abbott has laid it out in this speech and previously, Texas is not necessarily the home of justice, depending on where you're at. Like if you're in Houston, he kind of acts like there's no justice and it's lawless and the judges are letting people go all the time. Now, he wants to work on that during the legislative session, right? Here are the emergency items as laid out by the governor in this speech. Number one, property taxes. Jeremy, is that surprising? No, not. (laughs) he, he, He said this in the campaign. We knew it was coming. Right. Right. Uh, here's another one. Ending COVID restrictions, quote, forever, close quote. Is that surprising? Not really, although Mm-mm. he didn't quite say how he was really doing it. He kind of, yeah, well, anyhow, a lot more complicated than it really is what he just said. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's kind of weird. Uh, education freedom, which we'll get to in just a second. Also, school safety. Bail reform, which I was just talking about, uh, you know, his rants against Houston and all that. Border security, nothing shocking about that. We are all about border security in Texas. There's no amount of money that is too much to spend on border security around here, apparently. And here's one that I thought some people were maybe not surprised by, but very interested in. The final one was the fentanyl crisis. And here's what he said about that. He said that, uh, look, There does have to be a focus on border security, and a big reason for that is because of the death toll in this state and this country because of all the fentanyl coming in across the border. Fentanyl poisoning has now become the leading cause of death of Americans between 18 and 45. This travesty must end. I met with Texas families who have been ripped apart by fentanyl. And with us here tonight 
is Verona, Veronica Caprici from San Antonio. Last year, she told me about her daughter, Danica, a bright young woman lost in her prime because she took a pill not knowing it was laced with fentanyl. The story of Danica and too many others inspired us to start the One Pill Kills Awareness Campaign. Now, of course, this is something that has bipartisan support trying to crack down on this. Democrats and Republicans alike would say that no one should die that way. Uh, It does seem, though, Jeremy, that Republicans have done a much better job of seizing on the political moment when it comes to this. I'm reminded of uh, when former President Trump in his uh, winning campaign in 2016 was talking a lot about the opioid crisis, right? Uh, especially in the in the Midwest and some of those places uh, where he was able to uh, compete. You know, in some states where Democrats, you know, previously had won in those areas and Republicans didn't have a chance, he was able to flip some of those states based on some of these arguments. Um, it, you have made the point before that look, it seems a little selective the sorts of uh, tragedies that have in, been inflicted on our children in this state. The, the governor seems to be really upset about this but not about other things like, for example, kids being uh, you know, mowed down uh, with an assault rifle in Uvalde, which, of course, he again did not mention in his speech. Yeah, I was about to mention that. It's like, you know, just like in the, uh, his inaugurational address, he did not mention you know, Uvalde at all. It's like, I'm just, I, I'm just, I'm not understanding why it's not at least getting a, a reference, you know, especially, again, the issue of school safety is clearly going to be an issue going forward. It just seemed like it would have fit nicely in there. Just, you know, just an ode. Again, I'm not thinking that he should be calling for, you know, gun control or anything like that. I know that's not going to happen, but like, it just still seems like a good time to kind of remember the people we lost, even if it's a minute of prayer type thing or a moment of silence or whatever. Uh, but you know, the, the other thing, you know, it's what's interesting about the fentanyl thing. So there's obviously look, you know, shocker here. There's a lot of politics with, you know, politics uh and in this case fentanyl is like all swooped up into politics as too so and a lot of uh, uh the republican talking points right now have been about how fentanyl is coming across the border you know important to re- note on this that most of that is coming through ports of entry it's not coming on the backs of migrants but you wouldn't know right. that if you listen to the field hearing down in uh uh Earlier this week, you know, Congress had a field hearing down there where they were talking about mm-hmm. the fentanyl crisis. And you would have thought, you know, migrants are intentionally coming into the country to drop fentanyl off and go home. You know, it's like that's not what's happening. But secondarily, so I, I knew the governor was going to talk about fentanyl. You, know, you could just feel it coming. He's been talking about it a lot. And so I wondered if he would take it to the next step. And the next step being just a couple of days ago in front of the Capitol, right where the governor worked, uh, there was the Texas harm. Alliance was out there. Those folks are are pushing the state to, you know, make fentanyl testing strips more available everywhere. So people who are taking these, you know, medications, you know, can test what they have to make sure it is really a sleeping pill or whatever they Mm -hmm. thought they bought uh, and make sure it's not laced with fentanyl. I think that would go a long way. But of course, that's a huge jump. To go to that starts getting into that you know you know clean needle testing type programs where some Republicans think that is a leading uh, you know that's leading to encouraging people to do more illegal drugs. But like so, I was wondering if Abbott would stick his neck out a little bit further on fentanyl and say mm-hmm. let's get fentanyl test strips in the like hands of health departments so they can make sure like the kids who are taking this stuff at least can make sure. You know, even if they, they're trying to hide from mom and dad what the heck they're doing, they at least yeah. are not taking something that will put them in a coffin tomorrow morning. You know, and that seems like a very good place to kind of go if we're really going to address the fentanyl crisis. But just saying, OK, we're going to put more law enforcement at the border or have an ad campaign. You remember that Uvalde ad campaign? Like, you know, they brought Chuck Norris in, remember, to kind of do an ad campaign to get kids to call the state if they see something weird. Like, I'm sure that's going over really well. You know, it's like a 
you know, sarcasm all over the place. And none of the kids even knew who Chuck Norris was, which I found very disrespectful. I mean, he played Braddock and Braddock missing in action. I'm just pointing that out. <laughs> um, the the uh, school voucher debate uh, is going to stay hot throughout the entire legislative session, I do believe. Um, but uh, I do still have some of the same questions I had before about it, uh, even after the speech last night. And we talked about this at some length previously, Jeremy, uh, about the idea that, yes, look, Abbott is absolutely in support of ESAs, education savings, savings accounts, or I just put slash vouchers. Uh, that's what it is. Um, and he said the same thing again in his speech on Thursday night in San Marcos. Um, here, I, I want people to listen to what he actually said about it. And the emergency item, I'm going to make an argument here that is nuanced, but there's a reason for that. With Abbott, he's a clever attorney. There's a reason that he uses each word that he uses, and there's a reason he wouldn't use other words. He's very deliberate in the way he speaks. I've been studying this guy, covering him from when from the time he was attorney general. Okay, so he he doesn't just pop off like Rick Perry would do, which was a lot more fun. Honestly, this, <laughs> this is sort of this is more tedious, but it, but look, I'm up for the challenge. All right, so here's what Abbott actually said about education, freedom, and school choice, and vouchers, and all that. Here was that section of his speech. Parents also deserve education freedom. Without that freedom, some parents are hindered in being able to help their child succeed. That must change this year. The The way to do that is with school choice through state-funded education savings accounts. We've seen them work in other states. And we've also seen them work right here in the state of Texas. I created education savings accounts for special needs students. It worked so well, a bipartisan supermajority passed it into law and are now seeking to increase funding for it. Now, what he said is technically technically correct, but it's a little misleading. There's no bipartisan big push for... Uh, getting a, a major school voucher bill passed. He kind of makes it sound that way in the comments, Jeremy. And the, the program he's talking about is very, very limited. And this bipartisan coalition he's talking about, they want some more resources for that very, very limited program. All right, that's the short way to say all that. He goes on to say that vouchers should be made available for all students. But what about the concerns that schools will be defunded if money is diverted for this program? To be perfectly clear, Under this school choice program, all public schools will be fully funded for every student. This issue is so vital to the future of our state. I am making education freedom an emergency item this session. So the emergency item is education freedom. I would like to do a little lesson on what an emergency item, what that actually means. So an emergency item, it's not that you're going to break the glass, call 911, and it has to happen tomorrow. That's not what the emergency item is. Under the state's constitution, the legislature cannot act on legislation for the first 60 days of the legislative session unless the governor says, hey, on this topic, y'all can get to work. That's an exercise of his power. So instead of calling it an emergency item, you could think of it as um, one of his top priorities, one of the things that he really wants to see happen. Um, It's not necessarily a quote unquote emergency. Again, it's not misleading, just people kind of misunderstand it. So when he says it's it's, uh, education freedom, he could have said it's ESAs, right? He could have said the emergency item is school vouchers or education savings accounts. He wants that, right? He did not do that. But what he did do was he said that education freedom includes school vouchers, but it also includes a lot of other things. I'm going to read them to you. Ready? This is from the governor's office. Expanding school choice through options available through ESAs. That's the first bullet point. The second is amending the Texas Constitution to bolster a parent's rights as the primary decision maker in all matters involving their child. The next one is requiring schools to better inform parents of their rights. The next one is expanding parents' access to curriculum, school libraries, and more. Also, reforming the grievance process, as if schools don't put up with enough parents griping about things, <laughs> but but we're going to expand that as well. Um, another bullet point from the governor's office, allowing parents to decide if their child should repeat a grade. Strengthen uh, Another bullet point is strengthening consent requirements for health services. 
course, that's another COVID thing, right? And uh, also protecting students from unnecessary personal data collection and ensuring schools are not sharing or selling student data outside the Texas public education system. I'm telling you all of this because the governor, when he says he wants more education freedom, that's his emergency item. Jeremy, I'm here to tell you, if he got any combination of the things in that list, whether it included ESAs or not, I think he'd sign the bill or package of bills and probably call it a day if he doesn't want to get into what I would call what I would describe as a legislative Vietnam, which is what school vouchers are in the Texas legislature. Every governor who has tried to take this on, as you have pointed out, they just ran right into a brick wall, didn't work out. And those were were for limited programs, right? Governor Bush, Governor Perry, they gave it a try, didn't work out. Now Abbott's going to make his big push. And as you pointed out in your coverage last night, it's still yet to be seen just how much he leans on lawmakers to try to get those ESAs done. Well, and here, this is where I diverge from you a little bit on this. I think you just answered, you know, why I think this year is different. I think, you know, Governor Abbott coming off uh, a easy, you know, victory in his primary last year and a pretty solid, you know, beating of Beto O'Rourke and the general election has more political capital. At least he feels he has more political capital than maybe he's ever had. Uh, he's coming into this on an issue that has some national momentum right now. You know, as I pointed out in my coverage and on the show, uh, hmm. Iowa and Utah and Arizona have all gone this route recently. And so he has kind of a model to work off of. He has the, the program already in place. And now it's just how much of the power and force of the governor's office is he willing to throw into this? Right. And when you brought up Bush and Perry not being able to do this, I think that is partly motivation right now. I think Governor Abbott has a chance or sees a chance where he will not be in the shadow of these two guys on all the things that they did in their tenure mm-hmm. as governor because they did quite a bit of stuff on their own. And I, I keep coming back to what does Governor Abbott want his legacy to be? You know, there have been some things he's done over the you know last couple of years and you know, last two terms, obviously, that he's proud of. But if he were able to turn around and say, I was able to do what Rick Perry and George W. Bush was not able to do. I was able to get the beginning of a school voucher program or school choice, however he wants to phrase it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think he has this potential runway. And I, you know, like I like even a month or two ago, I would have said, yeah, I don't think they're going to get it done this year. But the more time I've been spending around the governor and listening to him these last two months, I've been, you know, watching his speeches, you know, chasing him down everywhere I can possibly get to. And I just I'm feeling a different air of confidence about him and on this issue. And as I talk to advocates in the school choice world, read vouchers, uh, they see this is like legitimate. It's on right now. I, I don't disagree with the other things you're saying, but they always say that. Yeah, I know they always say that, but I, they have they have some you know good points here now this time around to why this is actually a different you know cycle. You know, and I think again because of the national movement, because of the resounding place where you know uh, victories that Abba had this last year at the ballot box, I think he has more ability if he wants to make this the biggest issue, if he wants to make this you know his battle zone, right. And like, that's the big key. You know, I, I'm getting the sense he does because he could have been softer in this speech about it. If he's just mm-hmm. like, if he just wanted this to be an issue and whatever, but you know, he's been spending a lot of time the last two months talking about this ESA program, you know, and about what he wants to get done. So I think he's thrown it out there and I think he's going to be more active in pushing this than I think we've seen him certainly the last two years, the last two you know, state of the state addresses, he didn't mention school choice. It never even came right. up which is astounding to where he is now, where he's just devoting a huge section of his speech to you know, pushing this issue with specifics of what he wants, an ESA. That's the closest I've heard him get to a specific. Sure. And I don't disagree with much of that. I just do think that him wanting to do it and putting his political capital behind it and all that still doesn't amount to it happening. And, true. and I, would, I would true. say, I would also say this, you pointed out uh, that we, they've seen success in Iowa. Look at the difference. And you and I talked about this. You brought it up. The governor in Iowa worked on it 
session after session, right? For, you know, she worked on it for a few years. And I was talking with a, a friend of mine, a Republican who was visiting with a former member of the Iowa legislature, a Republican who, as this person uh, described it, this person got decapitated by the governor in their primary because they did not, they weren't sufficiently supportive of her plan. It wasn't even, it wasn't even that they were against it. <laughs> they just weren't full-throated supported for it. Uh, I haven't seen Abbott do anything like that. They're like threaten the members with primary challenges or, you know, try to uh, weed out those Republicans in rural areas who uh, still oppose this. Uh, so it seems to me that it, he doesn't, he hasn't really done the, the legislative, uh, you know, groundwork, right? There's a lot of the political groundwork. He's talked a lot about it. He's talked to all these different groups, but he certainly didn't make it a centerpiece of his campaign for reelection in the primary or in the general. I mean, he talked about it some during the primary. Don't don't get me wrong, but it wasn't the main thing he was talking about. Uh, but during the general, he almost talked about it, but almost not at all. I don't I don't remember him even bringing it up uh, during the general election. I remember that um, that Abbott and Patrick both did some explaining about it on the Chad Hasty show. Yes, toward you know you know in the fall toward the general election, and basically their message there was. If we do have a voucher program, it's not going to hurt y'all. So in other in other words, they were having to do damage control about it at that time. And uh, you know, if, let me let me bring this up now because I think it helps make the point. Um, you may have seen the reporting on this. Abbott's deputy education commissioner at the TEA, this guy I think you say his name Leshalop, Steve Leshalop. He was caught on tape talking to a mother. Uh, a special needs mom. She's got a kid who needs, uh, you know, some some special help in school. Uh, and what they were doing, and you know, you, you've reported on this stuff previously, Jeremy, where you have um, different families, different people who are going through different experiences, and a politician wants to be able to point to that person's story in their speech uh, as an example of for the solution that they're trying to promote. And in this case, Abbott wants to promote ESAs, and this education official. And again, this is a guy paid for by your tax dollars, folks. Um, this education official is trying to recruit this woman to be basically speech fodder for Abbott, right? That the story of her family and they're, they're dealing with their special needs child should be talked about in Abbott's speech. And the lady sounds very nice. She's, you know, she's saying, yeah, here in the local school district, I haven't gotten the help that I need, but I don't know if I'm really for vouchers. That's kind of her take on all of this. And basically the guy from TEA, the Texas Education Agency says, to this woman, if you would be part of the governor's speech, then that would be a really good way to screw over your local school district. If you're comfortable, um, I would love to connect you for you to tell your story um, to the speechwriter. Um, I anticipate that it would be be used uh, uh, in some form or fashion, and in my mind. What a good way for you to stick it to Joshua ISD. <laughs> so he says, what a good way for you to stick it to the Joshua ISD. All right. So, so once he said that, the mother told him that she's not necessarily comfortable with school vouchers, though, that she appreciates the help, but she is worried that other kids would have a problem at the school district because there would be fewer resources for the schools because she has paid attention to news coverage about this. And here's his answer to that. Your concerns are correct, and like this is largely like the, those are the anti-voucher like talking points. Which they did a really good job of. Like, yes, they have. <laughs> yes. But, but so, so in like Texas wouldn't be the first state to do this, right? Right. Like this isn't a new idea. This is happening uh, in many states across the country. And what the research is showing is that like yes, traditional public school districts are getting less money, but. There are no like detrimental impacts on actual like student learning mm -hmm. that are associated with that uh, that money, right? So school districts, what they have to do is just like be smart about um, like if they lose students, be smart about how they allocate the resources and like um, right, like maybe that's one less fourth grade teacher. Maybe that's one less fourth grade teacher is what he's, if, if people start leaving the school district, let's say a few people start leaving the school district with school vouchers to try to go somewhere else, that's less resources. That's what, let, let me put it this way so that people understand, because you hear all this stuff about the money following the child, right? That the money should follow the child. This is what the school voucher folks say all the time. The money should follow the child. That, that employee of the education commission here, the TEA, the Texas Education Agency, he is saying it would be one less fourth grade teacher 
for all the students who are still there, right? Not, not one less teacher for the kid who left. It's one less teacher for all the kids who are still there. So Jeremy, this is the point that I have made over and over again, is that the, the students who are there will suffer because there'll be less resources for the school. We have talked about this, about the idea that the money following the child is bogus the way that these school voucher people talk about it. Because for the average taxpayer, if you gave them a voucher that was worth the amount that they had paid in, in property taxes, it would be probably about less than one half the cost of educating one child in the school district. When a lot of those folks have not one, but two kids in the school district or three or four. Not most people have four, but most people have a lot of these parents have more than one kid. So let's say you gave them vouchers for two kids. And so they had a thousand dollars and they're going to go to a private entity that's going to charge them 15,000, 20,000 on top of whatever their voucher is to be able to go to that private school. And in the meantime, the kids back at the Joshua ISD or the Austin ISD or uh, the Houston ISD or the, you know, the, uh, the, the Lubbock ISD, wherever it is, those ISDs would have less resources for the kids. Um, let's say that you gave everybody a $5,000 voucher, five or 6,000, something like that. You give them the basic allotment and take that out of the school district. What you're going to have is fewer teachers. He just said it. And that means that we would be reversing our progress in so many ways on so many things. How many, how much work has been done to try to reduce class sizes in Texas and all across the country to try to, you know, get a better quality education for the kids? How much has Governor Abbott bragged about the increase in per student funding in this state, which some of the stuff he says is misleading about it, but there has been some progress on that, especially after the 2019 session when they put billions and billions of extra dollars into the public education system in the state. It costs something like $6 billion to do the same level of tax compression this time around that it cost $3 billion to do four years ago. We have This is how much money goes into the Texas public school finance system. Out of our quarter trillion dollar budget, and that's really hard for people to wrap their mind around, over 24 months, Texas spends a quarter trillion tax dollars, right? Some of that federal some of it ours. A full half of that is for public education, right? But that is still not the amount of education for kids. That's why the local districts have to raise taxes, right? That's only the state's portion is the half of a quarter trillion. Then locally, money has to be raised through your property taxes. And here we are. We're going to go ahead and screw that all up. As you have pointed out, Jeremy, this state has a long, nasty legal history battling it out in court over what it means to have equitable education and to get good resources and you know, solid resources, equal resources as much as we can to every school district in this state. Places tiny, places giant, having to figure out how to educate all these children. These are all our kids. And in our communities, we have to do better for them. We, we, don't, we can't do it if there's less money in the system. And that's what all of these members of the legislature are about to hear from their superintendents, their school board members, their PTA moms, people who you know participate in the Friday night lights of football, uh, you know games on the weekends, and this is the other thing that, that that people need to understand: in small communities, that is the biggest job creator, often in their area, biggest employer. It is the backbone of the community, and they're going to take money out of your school district to give discounts to rich people for private education in Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin. San Antonio and El Paso. Yeah, and, and you know, to the point you made earlier, the words matter. And like, if you look at what Abbott said in his speech, uh, he ends up saying that you know he, he does that whole you know, and he's said this before on the trail too. I, I heard him say this in Corpus Christi, where like he he defends public schools and like of course i love public schools i went to a public school he's a duncanville high school graduate like he says i'm going to fight for the public schools and he said but in that in his state of the state he said we're going to keep you know public schools fully funded he didn't say they're not going to lose money it's going to be fully funded as to what somebody thinks fully funded mm-hmm. means it doesn't necessarily mean they're not going to lose some money it would have been different if he had said i'm going to guarantee i will make sure more money is going to the schools even if there were a program that did it's like he didn't say that you know again he knows what he's saying there. he knows like fully funded 
gives them wiggle room so it doesn't come back at like you know like one of those obama things where you can keep your health care you know it's like <laughs> right. it, it, he's able to say no like i know there's less money going in but i only said it was going to be fully funded like they're completely covered on that because that's up into that's a very subjective term that is not mm-hmm. like you know uh, okay you're i'll guarantee you right now the south side independent school district will not lose a dollar he didn't say that like that would have been much more like if he says that you get a little bit more like okay maybe i'll listen you know but but he's not saying anything that like the like the isds and the teachers and the people with kids in public schools like are, you know like you said are afraid that what this program is going to ultimately doing is particularly in the poorer school districts that don't perform as well. Mm-hmm. And like those kids are going to be the ones who lose more money than the wealthy districts. More kids are going to leave a South side independent school district than a North side independent school district. And so what does that mean? Less for everything at South side independent school district and more for the kids in the north side. And that's the problem you start getting into. The wealthier districts don't have to worry about these losses. Westlake High School in Austin is not going to have to worry about losing students, right? It's going to be the kids in the the less economically fortunate areas that are going to face this problem. Yeah, and you you mentioned Obama. Uh, What Obama said, remember, um, I guess it was, uh, what is it, Uh, the... the (laughs) PolitiFact, that called that statement from Obama about health care the lie of the year when he said, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. And I would say this, Abbott is this close. And dear listener, I'm holding my thumb and forefinger just about an eighth of an inch apart. He is this close to saying, if you like your rural school, you can keep your rural school. So we will <laughs> nice. come back to this. Now, in the in the response to Abbott, the Texas Democratic Party first focused on, and I thought this was uh, probably a, a decent way to do this. I mean, they, there's always um, some stylistic debate about the responses to either the state of the union or the state of the state, because it can either be a very dry speech by someone like Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And it's not her fault. Remember when Rubio had to do that? And uh, the only thing anybody could talk about with Marco Rubio was that he had to duck down to grab his bottle of water. And Trump made fun of that and forever. And it was quite a sight to see. Um, in the Texas hey, Democratic Party he's a Party thirsty guy. Leave him alone. He was very thirsty. <laughs> um, in Texas Democrats, in their response, they featured, instead of politicians, although there were some politicians in the video too, but they also featured just real people in their stories, which I thought, you know, that's, that's a good way to do it stylistically. Um, they talked about one of the things that Abbott didn't talk about at all. They focused on some of the families from Uvalde. On May 24th of last year, I lost my child, Uzziah, when an 18-year-old gunman armed with an AR-15 walked into Robb Elementary and began to shoot at children. Just days before they were supposed to be let out for summer, my baby, Lexi, and 20 other children and teachers were killed that day. Since that day, we've been begging Governor Abbott to do what's right and institute the most common sense of gun safety laws. Like raising the age from 18 to 21 to be able to buy a weapon of war in Texas, but he didn't listen. They also highlighted the problems with the electricity grid that happened on Abbott's watch. There are other life or death issues that the governor ignored for the past two years, too. In 2021, when a winter storm came through Texas, it caused our electric grid to suffer multiple shutdowns and widespread failures. Despite taking all the recommended precautions, my home sustained over $100,000 worth of damage as a direct result of the grid failure. And, of course, they featured a teacher from Lubbock talking about education. I was a public school teacher here at Lubbock ISD for 14 years. I left when I realized I could no longer deal with Republicans putting a gag order on everything teachers are trying to teach. And for what it's worth, their idea of school vouchers would absolutely destroy rural public school districts and rural communities here in the Panhandle and across Texas. It would crush us here in Houston, too, right? 
What this so-called school choice is really about is defunding public education and sending our tax dollars to wealthy, privately owned schools. Jeremy, it does seem more and more that the Democratic Party and the Republican parties, not just here in Texas, but around the country, just don't even talk the same language. They don't even talk about the same stuff, right? I mean, here's, here's the Democrats talking about Uvalde. They're talking about the grid, which Abbott barely talked. He talked only a tiny bit about the grid. There were some people who were asking me before he gave the speech, will he make that an emergency item? I I laughed on that one. No, not at all. You know that he and the lieutenant governor disagree about that fundamentally about some of the things that ought to be done. Um, But when it comes to these, um, these responses, it's almost like they have completely different audiences. They're, they're talking to completely different people. They're not persuading anybody in the middle, probably. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, I don't know how many people actually saw this. You know that the uh, speech and the Democratic response were carried, I think both of them were carried on uh, just over 10 stations, 12 stations, something like that. In Austin, it was on a station that is pretty well watched KXAN here's one of the bigger stations um next star is the company the the media owner that was uh, you know promoting and and putting this out across their network of stations across the state um and in some of the bigger markets they either don't have a station or their station is the CW which somebody said to me is interesting that it would be on the same station that One Tree Hill was on and <laughs> some of our listeners <laughs> We'll get that reference. Yes, <laughs> um, but 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 uh, point being, these are not the big, you know, these are not the giant stations in Dallas, Fort Worth, and Houston. That's where the CW stations were carrying Abbott, and in San Antonio, your hometown, not on the air at all, not not being carried in a giant city in this state. Um, and of course, people will say, well, maybe Abbott doesn't care about having the uh, state of the state, um, you know, in the big cities, his supporters are out in the rural areas, but don't forget, but you know, those, those large media markets serve a lot of the rural areas around them, right. Especially around San Antonio and Houston and and DFW. Uh, So on these responses, Jeremy, do they matter? Does anybody care is always just a stylistic thing um, or can they really contribute to some larger debate in the legislative process? Yeah, it's a difficult system because obviously this system is so uh, geared to the majority, right? You know, it's like the Democrats don't have a lot of levers of power that they can, you know, call upon to slow anything down. (laughs) It's like they have to like somehow find a, a way to throw wrenches into the process that includes reaching out to Republicans. You know, it's like if they're going to or being part of a Republican opposition. So that's where like when we're talking about the school choice, you know, or yeah. slash vouchers or ESAs, whatever we're going to call it, we got to find a word for this, you know, because I got to say, like every time, I, you know, voucher or school choice, neither one of them are great term because like one a lot of people don't know what vouchers are and i have to explain like normal human yes. beings who don't spend their life in politics like what what are we talking about and so i try to explain that to you know people in a way that doesn't use the word voucher and and like i hate using the word school choice because you know it's like a a tested poll it's word just a marketing <laughs> term like. yeah right it sounds great it sounds wonderful school choice people would say school choice sign me up and then they find out what it is and they go oh i don't know yeah that exactly that'd be the right thing yeah, so so there's a very few levers of power. So like, look, they 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 said what needed to be said. I'm not sure if it like has much weight, but you just kind of like I just you know I may, hopefully I'm not like mis misremembering things as uh, W would say. Uh, but it just seems like there's a time there would be a little bit more kind of bipartisan outreach, you know, in the recognition that you know, look, we may not all get along, but we're all yeah. living here. We're all living here together. <laughs> it's like we get to share the same restaurants, roads, you know, libraries, whatever. It's like we're all in the same places. And it'd just be nice to hear like a little bit more bipartisan tone at times. I know I, I, Pollyanna, but you remember yeah, W. You w went to great lengths to try to be this bipartisan leader. Like he wanted people to think that, look, I can be Republican and treat you with respect too on the Democratic side and help mm-hmm. you here. You know, it's like. That is long gone, obviously. This was like Abbott was speaking to his people with poll-tested messaging that will go over well in a future primary. That's what his speech was built to address. And the Democrats just flip it around. They're like, they were talking about the issues they know their Democratic voters, their base particularly wanted them to talk about. Yeah, and 
the question of which Republican primary Abbott has his eye on comes up over and over. So I do have a couple of, as I said, just sort of broad sweeping thoughts about why the uh, speech was given in the way that it was. So because it was on the CW, it does make sense that it was less than a half hour because, you know, if you put commercials in, there were no commercials, but if you had put them in, then I guess if the speech was around 24 minutes, something like that, it could have been an episode of your favorite political sitcom that would have been on, you know, the WB, I mean, the CW. Wasn't it the, the WB at some point? Yes. They had that frog singing about the WB. And um, <laughs> Brandon probably doesn't even remember that. That was a little before your time, wasn't it? The, the singing frog? Anyway. I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, like, you know, the CW, they could have, like, done something with, you know, Veronica Mars, which, to you know, <laughs> was, was created by the author of, you know, of Veronica Mars is actually a San Marcos guy who actually okay. created that whole right. show. Good so catch. It could have been a whole Texas tie-in. It was San Marcus. You can see where it all kind of works together. You, it could have made reference to <laughs> Ralph the Swimming Pig. And there are people of a certain generation who know who Ralph the Swimming Pig is. So it's like, you know, in San Marcus, that's all we thought San Marcus yes. had, you know, and, and then they got some college there or something like that, right? No, I'm just kidding. I love you, San Marcus. Yeah, well, I do too. Um, I'm not sure if any of that was the target demo for Abbott, though. So again, the CW just strikes me as funny that that's where he was. That that's where you know that's where he's given the speech. But um, in this controlled environment, with the uh, you know the first the request for people to sign non-disclosure agreements that was then rescinded, but then they couldn't take their cell phones into the event. Um, it just it, it struck a lot of people as very secretive for something that's traditionally just been this big public event. You know, this was something that happens at the Texas Capitol in front of a joint session of the legislature. All of the, you know, house members are there and the senators are there and the, you know, the state Supreme court members, those justices are all there and all of that. You just all the pomp and circumstance and none of that. Instead, it was in a makeshift TV studio in this manufacturing facility where they do rare earth products, apparently. And there was some, security concern about doing it there, which is why the NDAs were even a thing in the, in the first place. Jeremy, I wonder if it doesn't speak to two, two things. One is that Abbott loves being in that COVID cocoon. But what I mean by that is this is sort of the uh, physical uh, manifestation of it. Um, over the last couple of years, Abbott has amassed just enormous amounts of power that no governor in Texas history has ever been able to wield, right? Because of the COVID disaster declarations for all 254 counties that we're still under today that are renewed by Abbott each month. The same guy, the same guy who in his speech said he wants to end COVID restrictions, quote, forever, still has a COVID disaster declaration in place for Texas right now. All right. And why is, why does he have that? Well, follow me down this, down this little, this rabbit hole. Governor Abbott, when he was attorney general, he was at times critical of Rick Perry for ever issuing executive orders because he said that, you know, Perry's executive orders don't even do anything. That is basically a press release. It doesn't matter. An executive order from the governor of Texas is, uh, you know, not worth the paper that it's written on is basically the way he said it. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he's a clever lawyer and he came to understand very quickly that when there is a declared health disaster, the executive order from the governor does have the force of law under the state's disaster act. And he has used that in multiple ways over the last two years, lots of ways over the last two years. And it's not me saying this first, it was people like Alan West and Chad Prather, people on Don Huffines, people far to his right, way further to my right. <laughs> These are people who are very, very conservative who were saying this and there were you know liberals saying it too, but it was mainly coming from the right wing of the Republican party criticizing him for this. And you remember that he did his state of the state away from the Capitol last time because it was COVID. It was, it was the COVID restrictions were in place and people said, well, Hey, it makes sense because it's COVID, but it's not COVID anymore. According to him, he wants to get rid of those restrictions forever. The other, and so that's one observation. The other is the other big thought is that if he's running for president, this is a governor who, and his consultants know this, he thrives in situations that are very tightly controlled. They wanted to control everything about the image of this, Jeremy. What folks are in the crowd, exactly what people are in the crowd, you know, which folks are there. Um, you know, the, the, the pictures, let's say, why did they take people's cell phones? 
people kept asking me this. Why can't they take their cell phones in? I talked to a guy who said that he went to the event and of course they wanted him to bring the cell phone so that they could put it in a bag for him and keep it until he left and give it back to him. Um, why did they take people's cell phones? Because they wanted every image of this speech to be captured by their cameras, the cameras that they control, right? The, not, not just the average guy who's taking his cell phone out and taking a selfie, turn, turn around and take the selfie with the governor in the background. None of that stuff. No, they wanted every image to be tightly controlled. If you're going to run for president though, Jeremy, at some point, you don't get that anymore. You know, you're going to go on a stage with 14 other Republicans or however many people will end up running, right? You're going to, you're going to be in situations that are not tightly scripted, like a CW episode, not, uh, you know, done in a makeshift TV studio that you have control of everything over. No, it, if you run for president, it gets messy and it gets messy real fast. And it gets messy in those early states in Iowa and New Hampshire, where you don't get to handpick those crowds. You have to, you know, you got to talk to whoever shows up. Yeah. And that's very different. You know, like you're pointing out, it's like, this is a guy who, you know, during this last campaign cycle, he didn't do a lot of rallies. The rallies he did do were uh, with with groups that were solidly behind him. It's not like he was going to put himself, and, and this goes towards, you know, during the primary too, in the Republican primary, he also made sure he wasn't going to be in some group where, you know, it was going to be, he was going to be outnumbered by Alan West or Don Huffines type fans, right? And it's like, so he's been mm -hmm. pretty careful in making sure, like, he's not in an unscripted you know, environment, but like, you can also see in his delivery and speeches, like, you know, he's just more comfortable in that tighter setting. Uh, you know, I, I often see him when he's in the bigger venues, he kind of struggles still with trying to get the applause line right in some of his speeches where he kind of, you know, he's headed for something. He tries to drop it and there's no reaction or, you know, vice versa. He, they, you get a reaction halfway through, like where he's trying to finish his point. You know, that takes a time to kind of get used to doing that. And I don't know if he's a natural at that. I think he's, you know, maybe he'll get better down the road, but you can see mm. his people like, no, no, let's, let's just be scripted on Mark. You know, it's like, you know, I, when I covered Rick Scott in Florida, who was the governor, you know, he was a guy who came from the business community, never had much speaking skill in terms of a crowd. He had some of the same struggles, you know, it's like where it's like they tried to keep him in, you know, tight areas and like they had to train him up to how to kind of communicate with maybe a crowd that has somebody who does boo you. You know, what are you going to do when, you know, when Grandma Joe in the back is, you know, booing when you say something about vouchers? <laughs> can you do something with that? And mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a heck of a politician who can kind of take that. And uh, I don't want to give Biden too much credit, but certainly you saw that a little bit in the State of the Union. You certainly you saw it a he lot. Yeah. And he, and like you see him every now, he goes, oh, come on, give me a break. Oh, that's much of malarkey. He'll throw things out there to kind of <laughs> help him. And that's a device in of itself. So in Abbott, I'd, I want to see him have those devices too, at least, you know, if somebody's saying you're just trying to take kids, you know, money from my kids in his public school, I want to hear how Abbott reacts to that when it's not on the script. Yeah. Well, I mean, He's been in office now uh, for for all the offices he's been a cumulative what about thirty years. Yeah. I'm not sure he's going to get. I'm not sure he's going to get better at public <laughs> speaking. As someone, as someone, uh, a Republican described uh, his speaking style this way to me one time. They said that he's kind of like someone who went to Toastmasters. Yeah, uh, and you know, did their little program, but he, but they said he went to Toastmasters but never got any better than that. Um, so anyway, um, uh, a quick update here on uh the attorney general and his issues his issues um did you see that he is now getting a lot of blowback from republicans about what we told you about last week which is the 3.3 million dollar settlement with his former employees in the office of the attorney general uh the speaker of the house dade Phelan, republican from beaumont talked with jack fink a reporter at cbs 11 in dallas fort worth and listen Phelan does not sound too happy with paxton for committing more than $3 million of taxpayer money to a settlement over, you know, his basically what could be described as his screw up in office and his legal uh, issues. Um, there are some Republicans who think that maybe he should pay this out of his own pocket. I'm not sure exactly how that would work since this was an issue involving the OAG, the office of the attorney general, but here's what, uh, here's what it sounded like when uh, Jack Fink was talking with uh, the speaker. Should taxpayers have to foot the bill for that? I don't anticipate that $3.3 million being in the House budget. Mr. Paxton is going to have to 
come to the Texas House. He's going to have to appear before the Appropriations Committee and make a case to that committee as to why that is a proper use of taxpayer dollars. And then he's going to have to sell the 76 members of the Texas House. That is, that is his job, not mine. And so you don't do you support it personally? No, you don't. I Why do not? not? I don't think it's a proper use of taxpayer dollars. Now, on top of that, Jeremy, I, I have seen that the Texas Senate has not included the settlement money in, in their uh, proposed budget. And the governor overnight uh, distributed his proposed budget. The governor is always supposed to do that, even though it's really up to the House and Senate to come up with what the state budget is. But the governor can make suggestions. So uh, I took a look at the governor's proposed budget, and it also does not include the $3.3 million for this uh, settlement uh, that Paxton has agreed to. So I'm not sure how that's going to work out. Uh, but look, uh, the fact is that he gets grief, as I mentioned last week from Republicans when he's costing people money, when it's a, when it's a money issue, um, it gets real interesting. So I think to watch the attorney general have to answer questions about this in front of the house appropriations committee and the Senate finance committee is going to be fascinating. Yeah. And for a guy who's had so many, uh, issues that <laughs> we'll say in public office, he's had an ability to mostly escape a lot of the accountability, but the one place where he's been kind of consistently getting called out is in the house and Senate. And the, mm-hmm. when they're building budgets, they want to know like, wait a minute, there's some funny things in your budget here. And you're asking for stuff that we don't want to spend. It's the one area we get a little bit more open Republicans questioning a fellow Republican state office holder on how he's running his office. You don't get that a lot in this process. It's a very opaque, like everybody's nice to each other, you know, mm-hmm. my friend, no oh, crack jokes, but Paxton's the one guy when he goes present before the Senate finance committee a couple of years ago. And now this time around, it's like, he's getting real questions. It's like, Hey, what are you doing? Why are you making us you know, spend $3 million of the taxpayer's money? for you and something you did, you know? So I, I, this will be interesting to watch how aggressive they get again, based upon what they did just two years ago when they were upset with him, you know, illegally moving money around in his budget to cover costs that weren't allowed with what he was using. You know, he just did it without any, you know, preclearance from the Senate finance committee or the house, you know, folks It's like, he just did it, you know, and they all called him out on it. It's like, you can't do this. This is literally illegal. It's like, and he goes, okay, I won't do it again. And now here he is back. Uh, oh, by the way, I need three million bucks. <laughs> Don't worry about what it's for. Just give me a check. <laughs> His critics might say that something being illegal has never stopped him before. Um, and you know, if you look, if you look at uh, what was being done specifically on that, he was moving money from facilities over to salaries so that he could give raises to people. And I remember, I remember that uh, the former senator. Uh, who was the uh, finance chair, Jane Nelson, who was a former school teacher, by the way. She really sounded like a school teacher when she was she did. educating I remember him. That well. <laughs> when, she, when she was educating him about that, she said, uh, hey, why do we even have a legislative process? Why do we even have uh, you know, an appropriations process if you can just move the money around however you want? Not really, not really enjoying this here. Uh, so we'll maybe get to see a repeat of that uh, performance. And maybe, maybe it's even, uh, even, even more entertaining. Because now it involves um, this uh, this lawsuit in which his former employees called him, uh, you know, corrupt. They said that he was, uh, you know, abusing his office, that he's involved in bribery, all of this to cover up a, an alleged affair and all of that. So just watch that space. That's going to get interesting as the session unfolds. What was this? Uh, set the scene for me, Jeremy. Uh, the governor was snubbing the White House or he said he didn't really give a damn about being in Washington. He'd rather be with folks in Dallas-Fort Worth. Yeah, you know, Governor Abbott, along with, you know, every governor in the nation was invited to Washington, D.C. for the National Governors Association meeting uh, and then to go to the White House and meet with Joe Biden personally and with some of his, you know, cabinet members and uh, high level staffers. Uh, And so, like, all the all the governors in the nation were invited to this thing. And a lot of them went, including Republicans and Democrats. But Governor Abbott had a different kind of a viewpoint on it. Yeah, here, here's what he said there uh, up in uh, Grapevine. Uh, I was invited to uh, spend today uh, and tonight uh, at a black tie event uh, in the White House with President Biden. I chose to be. So I could be with, with, with Biden in Washington, D.C., or could be here with you in Grapevine, Texas. The choice was easy. 
<laughs> Again, on this thing about whether he's running for president, Jeremy, it's, a, it's a, maybe an irony. You have uh, some conservative Republican governors who went to this thing, right? But um, if you're running, you don't go to Washington. You run away from Washington. Yeah, interesting. Others who skipped the event, Ron DeSantis. I don't know. You may have heard he might be running for, for you know, Something. the president of the United States, too. Uh, another one who skipped was you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders up in Arkansas, who just delivered a scathing, you know, response to the State of the Union address. So, like, so the people who <laughs> were not there were notable for why they're not there. But, you know, again, you know, not quite a bunch of liberals who showed up to that place because you ended up having the governors from Tennessee, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. South Carolina all showed up. And those, you know, we're talking Trump-backed type Republicans who, you know, were hanging out with Joe Biden. And again, there's a, there's a, you know, the one thing, you know, like I, I see what the governor's trying to play off, but like there is an opportunity there to kind of make some relationships with the cabinet people who might right. be able to help your state a little bit. And you can see that's the dynamic that, you know, again, you know, the governor of Tennessee is probably thinking, you know, I, I you know, look, I don't like these guys, but I got to, you know, figure out how to work the system to make sure my state's getting its share. Right. And, you know, that is a big difference over the last decade. People will always uh, talk about how things didn't used to be like this. And it starts to sound like the old timers are saying they're just they're sort of pining for the good old days. Right. But there are actual differences. I mean, I, I think about, you know, Rick Perry and Bill White a Republican and a Democrat. Bill White was the uh, mayor of Houston uh, 15 years ago when Katrina and Rita, two big hurricanes, struck the Gulf Coast. They were working hand in glove to take care of these things. I don't even know that Abbott and the Democratic mayor of Austin even had a phone conversation during our recent ice storm, right? I don't know that they did anything to work together on that. Um, Then you have those Republicans who did go to Washington for that event, but Abbott doesn't. Um, and I think a, a lot of it has to, and by the way, both of those, all of those people I'm talking about, you know, uh, 15 years ago, they all ran for things after that white and Perry ran against each other for yeah. governor after that. Right. Yeah. And they still work together during the disaster. Um, but it is a big difference now. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole idea that you ever even, and, and who was it? Um, Chris Christie, you know, he, he got in such hot water with Republican voters because it was it hurricane Sandy where he was, uh, you know, shaking Obama's hand. Can't be doing that, right? Punished by punished by primary voters um, who don't seem to care that sometimes these different levels of government have to work together and that voters made different decisions in different places. In Texas, they made the decision to give us basically all Republican government. But around the country, they didn't do that. Around the country, it was a mix, and we ended up with Democrats in charge in Washington. Well, and, and it's almost two years to the day. Yeah, that Joe Biden came to Houston after the ice storms, uh, after the big winter storm that knocked all our power out, whatever. Yeah. Uh, it was, it's two years ago today that, you know, almost today that, you know, Biden came to Houston and Governor Abbott was very cordial to him and they were like palling around and all happy. And I'm sure like he, he just doesn't want to have that image of him, you know, smile. Cause look, you know, say what you will about Joe Biden, but he has an ability to be disarming and kind of make oh, sure. even his opponents laugh a little, you know, it's like, and so it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, you risk having a photo out there, I guess, of, you know, Joe Biden, you know, smiling with you. And like, cause there are those photos. They do exist from two years ago in Houston. I was there. I watched it. I watched them in the food bank going through there, you know, with big smiles on their face. I watched them in the command center at Harris County. You know, they look like they were fine. They could work together. And it's just, it's just interesting how far it's gone now where like Abbott, you know, greets him on the airport runway in El Paso, sticks mm-hmm. a piece of paper in his hand, you know, not very cordial at all, gets an invite from the White House, and he's like, yeah, I'm not taking it, you know, <laughs> he's just, and he's bragging about not taking the invite. It's like, you don't have to do that, you know, you, you choose to do that for a political reason, and so clearly he picked a reason. Yes, well, I mean, it's just, I mean, to me, it is just very, very unfortunate that this is, I, I was listening to, um, and we'll wrap up here in just a second. Uh, it's just about enough show. I can't take it anymore. I'm going to talk about Ted Cruz next week. Okay. Um, we talked about him last week. So, but I do want to say this. I was listening to the Sean Hannity show. It was a few years ago. And Hannity had talked about, of course, you know, big conservative talk show host. And he's, he's doing his radio show. And he was talking about having dinner with some of his friends who are Democrats and in New York City. And one of his callers 
took issue with it and said, how in the world? Do you, do you, these people are horrible. I mean, they, they believe in this and this and this and this. So, Sean, what are you doing? Are you a traitor to, to us now? And Hannity was defending, you know, going to dinner with Democrats. And he was saying, oh, listen, they're good people. We just disagree about issues and all of the, as if Hannity was confused about why the guy would think that when he and all of these other folks are always, and there's a liberal version of it too, but all these people on, on the right and the far right constantly whipping people up and making folks think that because they don't agree on issues that they are enemies yeah. and that they are traitors. Right. And that, and so people who vote in primaries think that way. Right. I mean, that that's what, that's what got Chris, you know, Chris Christie in trouble the working with the democratic president when there was a natural disaster. What is he supposed to do? So there is a consequence for all of you, for all of us, real consequences for this pettiness. All right. Like I said, done. That's enough show. I can't take it anymore. (laughs) However you're listening, (laughs) hit the uh, subscribe button, automatically download that sucker. It'll be right there on your phone when you're ready to go. When you're ready to listen, subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next time.